Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. My name is Paul Esser, a Hebrew Bible PhD student at Yale University. And I'm Tim McNinch. I'm an assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. Rachel and Rosie, our other two amazing co-hosts, are off this week. Hey, Rachel and Rosie, if you're listening. (laughs) Paul, we have Psalm 23 this week. That's a popular one. Yeah, yeah. This one was a major part of my early relationship with the Bible. Uh, We all memorized it in Sunday school, actually. Not just in English, but in a few other local languages while I was growing up in Ghana. And it is one of the few passages that most people would describe as their, you know, favorite psalm, I'm sure. I don't know (laughs) if it is still my favorite psalm now, but it's certainly one of the few passages I learned to recite from memory. And I wonder, Tim, uh, do you have a favorite Bible verse? (laughs) (laughs) No, I love all my children the same. (laughs) (laughs) Fancy. (laughs) Hey, Paul, do you remember any bits of this psalm in those local languages? Could, Could you recite a verse or two? Uh, I think so. Which is, uh, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's in tree, by the way. The mother tongue of my mom. Yeah. Wonderful. It's beautiful. Okay, great. I suspect that one of the main reasons why the psalm is famous is the metaphor of the shepherd that it employs. Describing God as my shepherd my rohi, right? Mm -hmm. It's deeply moving. It is pastoral, not only in a churchy sense, but also agriculturally, you know, in a way uh, that we all would like for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. We we all crave words of care and compassion. I guess that feeds a part of our makeup as humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, you know, whom I stayed with for a few years in Ghana was a shepherd. So I experienced firsthand what it means and and what it takes to be a shepherd, a good shepherd for that matter. So I can never think or talk about this psalm without bringing her up. She kept goats at home, about 30 or 40 at a time. Hmm. Like the shepherd in this passage, she would go out into the deep every dawn and return with fresh pasture for the flock. Rarely did they eat stale pasture. It's always something fresh. That takes a lot of compassion and dedication to keep up with. Another thing I remember her doing a lot is smearing of oil on the head and body of her flock. You know, sometimes goats head themselves, especially in the head, when they are fighting each other. Wounds in the head attract flies. When flies attack wounds on, on, their, on that part of the head, uh, goats cannot defend themselves, of course. Mm. Oiling helps dis- discourage flies from stopping on those head wounds by making the wounds slippery and sticky. They are also mixed with medicinal herbs that heal those wounds faster. Hmm. The oil smearing is, is such a scene. It is done one goat after another, much like a nursing mother caring for you know, her children, one child at a time. It, it takes a lot of time and it takes patience. And I would say personalized care like that is, is that sort of thing that most people in my community imagine when Psalm 23 comes up. Yeah, wow, that, that's... That's really completely fascinating, Paul. As someone who has almost no connection with the world of agriculture, I sometimes forget how central that experience was to the world of the biblical authors. So getting just a little window into that cultural perspective makes this poem leap off the page. That's, that's That's just amazing. That's right. That's right. Experience, they say, is, is the best teacher. 
you know? So uh, let me zone in into two things in the passage that often don't get the same amount of popularity as others. The, the little line in verse three about God's name and then the function of the rod and staff in verse four. Hmm. It is very interesting that the sentence doesn't end with tzedek, right? It continues to provide a reason. It ends with leman shemo, right? For his name's sake. Why is the sheep taking a right path important? For the sake of the name of the shepherd. The key word here is name. Mm -hmm. There are so many uses of Shem, which is the Hebrew for name. Actually, I looked it up and it appears 864 times in the Hebrew Bible, most of which would mean, you know, what you call a pressing. But here it is equal to one's reputation, a memorial of a pressing away of people not just what you call them. Right, right. If you remember the famous, you know, Tower of Bible story in Genesis 11, they were going to build a tower towards heaven, towards the heavens, so that they may make a name for themselves. That's what the text says. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the same word Shem is used here. Is it not remarkable that the name or reputation of the shepherd is attached to, you know, the path, the metaphorical or literal path of the sheep or the flock that it leads? You know, could that imply some sort of, you know, responsibility or accountability on the part of the shepherd? Yeah, yeah, I, I like that a lot. This idea of name making or memory, it's a it's a fascinating topic in the Hebrew Bible. And I'm glad that you bring some of that up by taking a closer read at a common but important word, Shem. So, um, but keep going, take us further. What else do you see here in Psalm 23? Sure. The other thought that I had is about the rod and the staff in verse 4. It is perhaps the only unpleasant thing in shepherding, for the sheep, of course. (laughs) (laughs) A shepherd's rod inflicts pain, not distractively, but instructively. According to the psalm, the rod's function is to comfort. The The word there is yinakmu, in a causative form of peel. You know, peel has like... Two different uses. One, it sort of increases and intensifies the meaning of the word. Mm-hmm. But other times, it, you, you know, it turns it into a causative you know, form. And the root for yinachmu here is nacham, right? Often meaning comfort. Right, right. Yet here, it stretches even further than comfort in, in sorrowful moments. A more appropriate meaning or translation would be entreaty which is a more active way of guiding the sheep toward a good course. I know Americans don't like to talk about spanking, so I won't, and I'm certainly not talking about spanking. I don't mean so at all. (laughs) But it is interesting to me that in this passage, a rod is needed if the shepherd can do any complete pastoral work. Yeah, yeah. I I can see where you're going with that, Paul, and I think you're right. Uh, Corporal punishment or physical discipline is a very culturally embedded or culturally particular practice, right? right? So we don't need to take this as a kind of prescriptive. That's right. But the broader principle behind this line, I think you're right, is very instructive. We all tend to resist correction, but God's correction is meant to actually guide us into health. Mm. So, So is that the angle that you'd offer to preachers? How would you coach them to handle this uh, overwhelmingly popular song? <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, it is always difficult if the you know, text is very familiar. Mm-hmm. But if I were preaching this text, I think I would take the chance to talk about uh, two important things. Uh, the motives of, of enemies and abundance in verse 5. 
I, I kept thinking about who an enemy is in this passage and beyond. To the sheep in this hugely poetic psalm, it might be a prey wanting to devour you know, the sheep's flesh, of course. Mm-hmm. But outside the world of the metaphor, maybe into the historical context, an enemy probably could look like you know, Assyria or Philistine or Babylon. I mean, a mighty political oppressor who, want, who wants to conquer and plunder and enslave Yahweh's people you know, and you know, take them into exile. Mm. However, today, seeing a neighbor someone who lives with, someone you relate with as an enemy is very easy. Yeah. You know, perhaps just because they have different beliefs or they are from a different country or they wear a different skin color or they have a different accent, we can easily misconstrue difference as enmity or threat. And depending on where I am preaching, this text could be an opportunity to unpack some of those, um, you know, underlining meanings yeah, of yeah. animity and difference and things like that. Uh, close to that line is, you know, the entire phrase prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. I see how that can often be seen as this grand elevation by God to make a public statement, you know, a display of success, more or less for the show of it. Uh, but I would like preachers to slow down when they feel tempted to take that route and to ask if indeed God elevates a person just to prove a point. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, and especially the point about um, the way we tend to read difference as enmity. It just seems so really timely because that we see that happening around us all the time and yep, feel yep. that temptation ourselves from time to time. Mm-hmm. And, and I I think you're right that this is a text that creates the space for discussion around that to to be had. That's right. That's right. The last thing that I I have is closer to a pitfall than uh, perhaps a preaching angle. It is about abundance in verses 1 and 5, precisely the language of not wanting, you know, I shall not want, or, uh, you know, caps overflowing and goodness following one always. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, who wouldn't want that? I, I, I do, you know, but I think that there's something there to be aware of. I do not want to reinforce anyone's stereotypes about developing countries, but I grew up in one. And compared to other places I've been, a lack of resources, often, you know, running water, food, means of transport, every basic need that you need, are probably some of the biggest obstacles to life in those regions. And in such context, anybody would say a loud amen to any text that suggests abundance. But let's take a step back and ask realistically, how many would have enough if some people had everything that can be had? And I'm sure somebody would argue and say, but there's nothing wrong with everybody having abundance. Well, I don't know what that world would look like, and neither do I know if I want to live in a world like that. Mm. But certainly, that is something to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to think about here, Paul. And thank you for offering these types of thoughts and giving us some insight into the text from a cultural perspective that's probably closer to the authors than my own. That's just so helpful. Thank you, Paul. Well, preachers, we hope you found something useful in this discussion. If you did, reach out. Tell us about it. Uh, You can find us on Facebook or email us at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, where you can find all of our past episodes, uh, even some fun merchandise, or you can donate to help keep the podcast going. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you get the new episodes each week when they drop. 
First readings produced by Paul and me, along with Rosie Candiful and Rachel Wren. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Paul Essa. Have a wonderful week.